Good morning. I trust that you're well, that you're knowing the Lord's help and blessing in these days. This morning, we're going to begin a series through the prophecy of Zechariah in the Old Testament. And uh, as we do, we're going to be thinking about the Lord will be king, the supremacy of Christ over all things. The Lord will be king, the supremacy of Christ over all things. Uh, this is the, the last of the minor prophets, uh, so-called, through which I have not yet preached. So it is um, a great uh, occasion for, for me, an opportunity for me to work through this, this book, uh, um, preaching through it uh, to you all. I hope that you are blessed and helped and that all of us grow in our love for the Lord and our, uh, our submission to his kingship, our obedience to his kingship, our uh, appreciation of his kingship. Uh, let me pray, and then we're going to begin to, to work our way uh, this morning through the entirety of the prophecy in overview form. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that um, you have given us your word, that you have preserved your word, that here we are thousands of years later reading a portion of your word. We thank you for the prophet Zechariah. We thank you for his life, for his ministry, for uh, the way in which you used him in um, a very uh, tumultuous and difficult time in uh, your people's history. And we ask, Father, that even as perhaps we find ourselves in such a season, as a nation, as individuals, as a local church, we pray that you would lead us and guide us and that we would know that you are king, you have always been king, and you will forevermore be king. Help us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Zechariah is a man who lived his life, as it were, in between. Between two worlds, the pagan Babylonian world in which he was born and the Jewish Hebrew world to which he was born. Between two offices, for although he was from a priestly family, Zechariah is known to us not so much as a priest, but rather as a prophet. Between temples, and, and thereby, so far as Jewish history is concerned, between two defining eras for the old first temple in which his ancestors had served was destroyed by the Babylonians, and the new second temple that should have already been built was as of yet far from complete. Indeed, Zechariah enters the scene while Haggai is preaching to the people about the importance of finishing the job and resuming temple worship. Now you can go back earlier this year, six or seven months ago, and listen to the sermons I gave from Haggai's prophecy for more on that. 
Zechariah, as, uh, as we read uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, prophesied in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, uh, the word of the Lord. Uh, he is uh, a prophet, the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido. And so he is um, speaking in between uh, two of the later messages of the prophet Haggai. And we know that by the very specific dates that are given. Zechariah lived between promises revealed and promises fulfilled. Zechariah lived between the already and the not yet, a time when religious liberty and a right of return to their land had been secured for the Jewish people. But they did not have independence, complete freedom, or their own king. Though they knew something of uh, a, a temporal deliverance and um, a uh, almost messianic liberation, under the reign of the Persian king Cyrus, the true and better Messiah promised by the prophets was yet to come. Though no longer exiles in Babylon, their years are still dated nonetheless, not with reference to their own kings, but with reference to a Persian king. Throughout the book of prophecy that bears his name, this prophecy of Zechariah, we see this continue to be demonstrated, the in-betweenness of Zechariah's life. It speaks with regard to the past in Zechariah's present, looking toward the future. We see Zechariah as a messenger between God and his people, a prophet who interacts between the unseen realm of angels, demons, and visions, as well as the seen realm of kings and nations of the earth. One day, Zechariah would die. We don't read about it in this book of prophecy. But uh, while there are many men named Zechariah in the Bible, this particular Zechariah, identified as the son of Berechiah, seems to be the one mentioned by Jesus in Matthew 23, 35. Zechariah, son of Berechiah. He refers to him as murdered by the scribes and the Pharisees between the altar and the sanctuary between the place of sacrifice spattered with the blood of lambs and the throne room of God filled with his presence. Zechariah lived and died in between. But Zechariah's message outlives the man even to the present day because it is not about him. In fact, we learn very little about Zechariah himself from this book. We are simply told that he is the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, and he prophesied in the early years of the reign of Darius. We do, however, learn much about the Lord, because this prophecy is all about him. 
who he is, what he is like, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do, and what all of that means for us. The message is summed up at the conclusion of this prophecy, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9. The Lord will be king over all the earth. And as this prophecy demonstrates, the Lord who will be king is king now and has been king during the days of Zechariah and well before all the way back into eternity. Let's see how this one great truth is demonstrated in this book. Over over the next several weeks, we're going to be walking through this book step by step. But this morning, I want you to have a a, a sweeping vision of this, this prophecy and what it contains and what it means and what it means for you. Fundamentally, its message is the Lord will be king. And the Lord who will be king is king and has been king. It's all the way through this prophecy. First of all, it's demonstrated in historic recollection. Verses 1 through 6 of chapter 1 take place in the eighth month of the second year of Darius. They are uh, in in our uh, uh, calendar, uh, October or November of the year 520 B.C. So as we ourselves enter the autumn months, uh, one autumn, Zechariah was hearing the word of the Lord. And the Lord was bringing to mind first the past. He recalls in verses 1 through 6 that the Lord was very angry to their fathers. He recalls that the former prophets cried out to them, but they did not, that is the fathers, did not hear or pay attention. Neither the ancestors nor the prophets live forever, but the word of God endures forever. He asks in verse 5, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, Did they not overtake your fathers? Now the heart of this message is stated in verse 3. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. In the English Standard Version, the punctuation is not as clear as it should be at the conclusion of verse 6. This is not uh, when he says, so they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us, so he has dealt with us. Rather, that is how the people Zechariah is speaking to respond. That's not about the fathers, because he's very clear that the fathers did not repent and that they did not live forever and that the word of the Lord has continued beyond them. Rather, as the Christian Standard Bible has this punctuated, it is so they, the people to whom Zechariah is speaking, repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. This is, after all, the word of the Lord. Indeed, The Lord who is identified 49 times in this in in this prophecy, 49 times simply 
as the Lord of hosts. There are other times he's referred to as Yahweh. There are other times he is referred to as the Lord of all the earth. But this time he is the Lord of hosts. Specifically, the Lord of armies. Uh, It is not about hospitality. I once saw someone uh, referring to uh, the, the words of the 23rd Psalm. Um, you have prepared a table for me. And they were saying, this is the Lord of hosts. And, uh, you know, that's, that's simply not what, what, what he's saying there. Uh, the Lord of hosts is not about God's hospitality. It is about his power and his sovereignty. He is Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of armies, the armies of heaven with its angels who created the armies of stars and constellations, planets and galaxies that comprise the universe within which is earth over whose nations and armies the Lord reigns and through whom he is working everything out exactly according to plan. This name, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, is repeatedly used. Again, 49 times in a mere 14 chapters, driving home the point that our Lord is the Lord of armies, the Lord over kings, and we are fools not to listen to Him. The three three strongholds that we face uh, today are those faced down by the former prophets to whom the fathers did not listen. Idolatry, as people worship false gods, either the making of their hands or constructs in their mind and society or um, uh, demonic entities and powers. Immorality, as people give themselves over to lives of wanton sin. And injustice, as uh, people continue to exploit and oppress their neighbor. In those days, the fathers did not listen And despite their religious pretensions, I think we must ask how well our own fathers listened. And we must examine ourselves to see how well today we are listening. How different are we in our relationship to idolatry, to immorality, to injustice? Learning lessons from the past and ways in which we see the Lord has been king, we are called with the returned Jewish exiles to consider our own ways and to accept the righteousness of God to deal with us according to our deeds. Truly, he does all things well. So whatever we receive, we receive from him. And we must know it is ultimately because he is just He is good. He is righteous. And yet, truth be told, if we're honest, we realize that we cannot cannot bear for God to deal with us according to our deeds. We deserve that, but we cannot survive that. Because for God to deal with us according to our deeds is for him to judge us continually. For us to bear the anger and the wrath of God. For us to to be under his retributive righteousness. 
and justice. That is, he is, he is punishing us for our sin. Of course, that would be perfectly righteous and totally deserved. No one is righteous. No, not one. Our prayer then must be that expressed in verse 12. How long, Lord, will you have no mercy? It is a desperate plea, a petition to God to remember his people and to return to them. Not because they deserve it, but because God has made a promise. Because God is a God of love. Because God is a God rich in mercy and kindness and forgiveness to all who call upon him. How long, O Lord, will you have no mercy? A few months on from the initial historic recollection that we read uh, there that took place in the eighth month of the second year um, of Darius, October, November, the year 520 B.C. We see further testimony to the Lord's kingship in an angelic visitation. One February night, the 15th of February to be precise, Zechariah had a dream in which he talked to an angel. The angel continues to talk with him in that dream. It's a phrase that's regularly repeated in this portion of the prophecy. The angel who talked with me. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to say, the angel who talked with me, a messenger of God talking with me. And Zechariah had that experience. And the angel continues to talk with him in that dream and through a series of dreams that comprise that one dream. For within his dream were other dreams. So that even when he thought he had been awakened out of his dreams, he found himself in yet another still talking with the angel. Those of you who've seen the, uh, the Christopher Nolan film Inception will be familiar with this concept of dreams within dreams. In that film, the deeper you go into your dreams, the less able you are to distinguish dream from reality and run the risk of never returning to reality. But the deeper Zechariah goes into his eight dreams the more he is exposed to what is really real. Spiritual realities, angels and demons, spiritual warfare with implications for the material world, unrighteous kingdoms of the earth falling, and a righteous king rising. The restoration of people loved by God who were momentarily cut off and the judgment of nations in perfect righteousness. In future weeks, we will look more at these dreams and their specific details. But for now, what I want you to hear up front is their message. The message of the historical recollection was the Lord has been king. 
But as the angel ushers Zechariah through this cycle of dreams, the message is that the Lord who has been king is king now. The Lord is king. But through these dreams, God is saying specific things that only he can as king with regard to his kingship and the implications of his kingship for his people and for the wider world. So when the, uh, the earth patrol of horsemen who have gone out to seek out the, the state of the earth, who report back to God, uh, say that they're, they're crying out to him, how long will you have no mercy? The Lord's answer, I will. No, I have returned to you. And he continues throughout these dreams to uh, either in word or in deed to express that he has returned to his people, that he will cast down your enemies, uh, that I, 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 the Lord, will build you up and defend you. I will take away your iniquities, forgive your sins, and make you a living rebuke to Satan when he accuses you. I will strengthen you and I will give you success. I will purge the nation of thieving Injustice and lies. I will banish wickedness far from you. I will continue to patrol the earth in righteousness and sovereign power. These dreams come to an end. But there is an epilogue to them. There is something to which they lead. An event at which they culminate. And it is a coronation someone who is crowned as king but it is not the governor Zerubbabel upon whom Zechariah places a crown rather it is Joshua Yeshua the priest and as Yeshua the priest is crowned Zechariah symbolically unites priesthood and kingship in one person, one man. Priest and king. But Zechariah is still the prophet. And so as we go into chapters 7 and 8, we move from a, a historic recollection uh, and an angelic uh, visitation to prophetic exhortation. And this prophetic exhortation continues very much the same message that the Lord is king. This takes place some years after the initial prophecy. We're no longer in the year 520, but the year 518. It is no longer the second year of King Darius. It is the fourth year of King Darius. But the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah again, this time on the fourth day of the ninth month, December of the year 518. So uh, as the, the word of the Lord comes to, to him at that time, uh, the people of Bethel had sent messengers to entreat the favor of the Lord. Uh, they, they were asking, should we weep and abstain, that is, fast in the fifth month, as they had done for so many years? But uh, the, the question the Lord asks through Zechariah is, when you fasted and mourned all of that time for these 70 years, all of this, this time that you've been in exile, 
Was it for me that you fasted? And then he also looks not only at their fasting, but at their feasting. And he asks, when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? The Jewish people um, have built their, their religious schedule, their calendar around fasts and feasts. But ultimately, they were doing these things for themselves. And so God, through the prophet Zechariah, says, calling them somewhat away from uh, the the, uh, ceremonies and the rituals of their fast and feast, and says that he would rather they render true judgments and show kindness and mercy to one another, that they wouldn't oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, that is the, the, the immigrant, the person who has come into the land, who's not from around here, but who has come to, to reside here, perhaps temporarily, perhaps for a longer period of time. They, 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 they have oppressed the poor, and he wishes that they would not do that. That they would not devise evil against one another in their hearts. He says, but those who fasted and those who feasted, they refused to pay attention. They turned a stubborn shoulder and they stopped their ears so that they might not hear. He's very descriptive when he refers to the state of their hearts. He says, they made their hearts diamond hard. But the prophet calls them, calls them again. To true judgment, kindness, mercy, justice for the widow, fatherless, immigrant, and poor. As he moves into uh, the eighth chapter, the word of the Lord continues to speak through Zechariah about his, um, his jealousy, his righteous jealousy for his people, that they would be his people, that they would live as his people, that they would know and enjoy peace and even prosperity. And so he calls them away from their fear to faith. Tells them not to be afraid, but to uh, let their hands be strong to serve the Lord in righteousness and faithfulness. And again, justice. Speak the truth to one another. Chapter 8, verse 16 says, Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise in your evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all these things I hate. And it seems that we live in a world where every, every day raises more awareness of corruption in the kingdoms of this world. Lies, dishonesty, injustice. Sometimes... Decisions are made, verdicts are passed that actually are completely consistent with the laws of a land, but that doesn't make them right or good in the eyes of the Lord. God calls us, his people, to know the difference between his law and the laws of the kingdom of men 
what is just in the eyes of God and what sinful people call just in this world. We are called away from all of this, idolatry, immorality, and injustice, to love, truth, and peace. Not peace without truth, not truth that never leads to peace, but truth and peace. And as we know and enjoy truth and peace ourselves as his people, we are enabled and emboldened to stand up and to speak out in a godless world, in a society that has rebelled against the Lord and his kingship. And to know that in all things, in all times, in all ways, whatever the kings of the earth are doing now, it is the Lord who sits enthroned in the heavens. And he's working out a plan. And he will be king. Which leads us to messianic expectation. Chapters 9 through 14, they tell us of a coming king. One who is prophetic. One who is priestly. One who will reign in perfect truth and peace and justice forever and ever. One who, who will enter into a city on a donkey. One who eventually will stand in triumph on the Mount of Olives. One who will extend salvation not only to the Jewish people, but to the nations of the world. One who will be a good shepherd, a true shepherd, unlike the shepherds who have neglected and abandoned the flocks. These chapters tell us of Betrayal of that king. They tell us of 30 pieces of silver thrown into the house of the Lord. The breaking of bonds of brotherhood. Of deep sorrow. Of strife. But ultimately out of. The sorrow out of the pain, out of the devastation, out of the loss, out of the grief, out of him whom they have pierced. There will come a triumphant reign. A shepherd will be struck. Sheep will be scattered. But a shepherd will reign. And sheep will be gathered. These things tell us about Jesus. This book of prophecy, hundreds of years before the life of Christ, tells us all about him. It, it, it is quoted or implied regularly in the New Testament. It is a book that has Jesus Christ at its center. 
Not only the first coming of Jesus, who would enter into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Not only of Jesus, who would be struck and his disciples would be scattered. Not only of Jesus, who would be uh, betrayed by one of his own and and the the brotherhood broken and, and shekels, 30 pieces of silver thrown into the temple by the one who betrayed him. Not only of Jesus who would be pierced, who would give his life and people would weep bitterly and would mourn over him. But it tells us of Jesus in resurrection, triumph and glory, returning to reign forever and ever. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. And I will gather nations, all nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile and the rest of the people shall not be uh, cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out. And the Lord will fight those nations as he fights on the day of battle. And this great prophecy culminates with the culmination of all things that you and I have known. Of all constructs that we understand of time and of space. In a great cataclysmic battle as the king who begins this prophecy with the words, I have returned to you, demonstrates what it looks like when he returns fully and finally. A great battle. Great victory. For this king, on that day there will be no light, cold or frost. There will be a unique day known known to the Lord, but not to us. Neither day nor night, but at evening time there will be light. And on that day living waters will flow out from Jerusalem. Half of them to the eastern sea, half to the western sea. It will continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one. And his name one. Do you know the Lord as king? Everything will come to a head. Many will die. Many will face judgment, but they will not stand in the judgment. That is, they will not survive the judgment of God's wrath. They, they will be under his punishment for all eternity. But there will be survivors. Everyone who survives of all nations, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. Non-Jews, not just the Gentiles, but the Jews who have returned to the Lord. And so he has returned to them. will all be gathered. And we're told that they will go up year after year to worship the king. On that day, there will be inscribed even on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. Everything down to the humblest of pots that fill the city will be 
set apart as holy to the Lord. There will no longer, he says, be a trader, a merchant in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Jesus won't have to come into the temple and turn over the tables of corruption and consumerism and materialism anymore. Because all of us, the world over, will be captivated by the treasures of the kingdom and specifically the treasure who is the king. Do you know Jesus as king? Zechariah talks all about it. I'd encourage you to read this prophecy as we go through it week by week. To learn from its historic recollection, from its angelic visitation, from its prophetic exhortation, and from its messianic expectation. The Lord is king. And let's put a name to the Lord. Jesus is king. So let's adore him. Let's worship him. Let's exalt him. And let's seek to demonstrate the kingship of Christ in every aspect of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is king. Thank you that he reigns forever and ever. Thank you that he is mighty, that he is glorious, he is powerful. Thank you that we do not have to fear, that we do not have to worry as the kingdoms of this earth crumble and fall, as, as, as they submit to all manner of other kings of their own making, idols and uh, just false, uh, false gods, false kings, demonic entities and satanic structures and uh, the, the idolatry, immorality and injustice of the Hebrew fathers continues in our day. Lord, may we not turn a hard shoulder to you. May we not have hearts hard as diamonds. May we hear your word and return to you and know you and love you as our king. And Father, we pray, we pray on behalf of this church, of the churches across this land, of this nation and the world over, that the Lord would return to us and that he would be king. Amen.